0: So um, welcome to the Intelligent Voice podcast. This is the first in hopefully a long series of interesting chats with interesting people that we've met over the years. So today I'd like to introduce Dave Power, a very old friend and colleague of mine, who is the CTO of Define Tech and head of AI and HPC at Esher Cloud. Dave and I uh, go back a long time to his days in uh, Boston, and we thought we'd have a Quick chat today about a few of the interesting topics happening in the world today. So, Dave, uh, welcome.
1: Indeed. Good morning, Nigel. And, yeah, in the absence of anybody interesting, I was happy to step in. Well, actually, and you, were, you were number year, 10. Man.
0: Yes, number 10 on our list of interesting people um, and the first nine um, the first nine denied knowing us. So um, it, is, it is great to have you today. So Dave, can you just tell us a little bit about um, what you're up to at the moment with um, Define Tech and Azure Cloud before I go down the list of prescribed topics that uh, we've been given to go through today?
1: Yes, I kind of course. So, sure, look, we're um, you know, we're I've been working in the HPC and AI space for the last, you know, 20 odd years or so. And prior to that, I was a researcher in, uh, the field of you know, parametric optimization within AI and looking at distributed genetic algorithms. So I, I've been both a user and an implementer of you know large scale systems over the last while. and you know with the, the FineTech guys we've you know been rolling out um, actually you know national infrastructure with organizations to help with res- the response for COVID, um, you know looking at kind of centralized AI environments and then regional edge environments for for processing and doing inference out at the edge. And um, and with the eSure Cloud project, actually that's an incredibly exciting project where we're actually building out a European-based um, AI-focused cloud infrastructure. So, you know, touching on things like data sovereignty and tech sovereignty and, you know, giving people an alternative to, to some of the big three that are predominantly used today. So uh, that, and um, of course, managing an underrated football team, which is also quite challenging in its own way.
0: Yes. So, yeah. Keep yes. very busy. Okay, well, maybe I actually. Fortunately, the um, the underage football team is a uh, is a topic we're allowed to talk about, but we might get to that uh, towards the end. Having um, having once. If managed, we run out of other
1: interesting stuff to cover,
0: I can have, talk to you about strategies
1: and formations.
0: That that would be quite useful. I actually had to. I I used to run um, an underage football team myself, actually, until one of the parents swore at me so much. I decided that I didn't really feel like doing it anymore, so um, it's it was quite astonishing. Well, you, was a, you shouldn't have been playing as part of the team. That was probably it. Yeah, absolutely. And um, making my making my son captain every week that was that was probably the problem. So um, I know we've all been there, but maybe maybe we'll leave the um, the football the football chat to uh, a less techie podcast. Um, and actually you you raise an interesting, raise an interesting point there, Dave, about data sovereignty. I mean, clearly um, we've seen a few interesting issues recently with the Department of Justice attempting to reach across the Atlantic mm-hmm. and grab data from um, EU EU sovereign, well, EU sovereign states, but actually American companies who are running in the us i mean do do you see that as a threat and and what is the way we're going to counter that
1: well it's a massive challenge for organizations right you're looking at you need first of all you know you're dealing with large us organizations that have t's and c's that very few people will actually go through in uh, detail but the, the long and short of it is i don't think your data can be guaranteed in these environments without appropriate levels of you know in, in encryption and whatever else you can do to kind of secure it so you know people that are storing analyzing processing sensitive data it's a uh, it, it's a risk putting it out on these us public cloud environments and you know we're under no illusion cloud is really starting to gather in terms of momentum i think we've seen this over the last 18 months with the you know, the COVID response and all organizations moving to remote work and looking to collaborate out in public clouds. But um, you know, the, 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 the fact of the matter is there isn't a you know very large European-based organization that can um, you know provide a similar scale of resources to what the large tree are able to provide and actually state that it is you know European-owned, European operated, and that the data will never be analyzed. Or looked at by outside organisations or countries.
0: So, is this something do you think that that the European Commission is going to get involved in, or do you think this is going to have to be something which is just purely funded by um, European money, European private money?
1: No, I think it's going to have to be driven both, you know, politically and from the commercial space. You know, we have to have a willingness behind, um, you know, the European countries. I mean, I, I think you kind of see this as part of, you know, there's a a Euro HPC initiative, which is actually really pushing the HPC agenda forward for Europe. It it realizes that we're behind as far as, you know, if you look at the US and even out in APAC and China, they've invested huge amounts of money in petascale and exascale systems. Yeah, Europe is somewhat lagging behind currently, although there is huge initiatives that are looking to correct and readdress that. So you can look at things like the European Processor Initiative, Euro HPC, which is going to pump about 8 billion into the HPC ecosystem over the next uh, six or seven years or so, by 2028, I think we're looking to have, you know, a very substantial European-based technology center uh, created around for HPC. And I think something similar has to happen with um, with cloud. And we do have, like, if you look at, you know, there's uh, Project Gaia, a Gaia X even, which is defining a set of standards for European cloud operators to adhere to, to increase interoperability between different cloud vendors as well. So there, there's one thing to just Create a cloud, but then there's another thing around open standards, which will make it easy for Europeans to operate within one cloud environment and actually easily migrate to another if they want to continue to do you know, additional federated <coughs> training or something like that for AI workloads. So yeah, it's um it's not an easy thing to address, but you know, there's certainly the early signs of you know Europe getting itself in order to, to address this. And um and, you know that that's one of the the extra cloud project that i'm involved in is is going to hopefully you know put together quite a substantial pan-european-wide cloud environment that's focused on you know ai uh for sustainable and ethical use and um yeah we, we hope to you know have something up and online i'm not too sure what i can actually say uh given the
0: layers of ndas and behind but yeah whatever is on our website is uh, <laughs> say, further. Yeah, but that, I mean, that, that's, that's really exciting, though, because I think it's something that we all feel. I mean, we, we do a lot of work as a UK company with um, financial institutions around Europe, and we quite often have to sign something saying that we are in no way affiliated with an American company yeah. because there is a concern that our head office could be hit with some sort of subpoena and uh, sensitive data would have to be handed over. And I live under layers of uh, data protection uh, agreements, you know, the whole kind of you know, standard contractual clauses and this type of stuff about processes and sub processes of data and, mm-hmm. and where this stuff could end up. And, and certainly one of the things that we've seen as a UK company is that Brexit has massively complicated this because we are now a third country as far as the EU is concerned. So kind of everyone hates us from a data protection perspective at the moment. So um, I think we're rather hoping that, that we might be let back in at some point, at least uh, from that point of view. So um, what I would say is when you're thinking about your European data initiative, if you could just think about us poor UK dwellers, because we'd love to have a part uh, a part to play in that when uh, when the time comes. Um, yes. I mean, I would, oh, of course, And actually, I
1: know the, the UK is a, a substantial part of our um, projected uh, roadmap. So that and I'll see if I can hook you up with an Irish passport, Nigel, as well. That might be a, help you be a bit more fluid around the place.
0: Absolutely. I mean, how, how are you finding travel at the moment, Dave? I mean, clearly, you know, you and I, we actually met for the very first time um, at a, a large industry show in San Jose um some seven or eight thousand years ago it seems and and clearly all of that has stopped so so how how are you finding the business environment and and are you finding that you're being hampered or have been hampered by an inability to to kind of travel and do face-to-face work
1: yeah i mean sure the the last 18 months have seen very little so i would have spent i'd say 75 percent plus of my time traveling in countries meeting customers meeting clients attending you know, road road shows, conferences, uh, and so on. So once COVID locked in, of course that grinded to an absolute halt. Everything went virtual. Every conference uh, was virtual. Every meeting was a Zoom meeting. So, you know, having gone through the last 18 months of that, I'm itching to get traveling again because it's the, the habit that I know and that I was used to. And, you know, I've actually been traveling now the last two weeks, I made it to London and two weeks ago I was out in Amsterdam last week and it's you know for me it's great to be back traveling I don't think you can ever replace that you know human contact and uh, you know touch and 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 so on and and just being around your colleagues but at the the same time um, a lot of these tools that we've all gotten very used to working and you know collaborating in I think they're Going to continue to play a massive role in how organizations operate and how conferences operate in the future. I think we're going to see both of these will stick around and um, you know I think depending on certain users perspective actually I keep on you know referring back to my kids, I've got a, 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 an eight, a seven and a four at this stage and they only meet people in virtual worlds so they've been brought up in the Minecraft world and the Roblox world and, you know, even when we're out with friends or they have friends over, they'll sit on two iPads beside one another, chatting to each other in Roblox, even though they're actually sitting beside one another. Um, so, you know, perhaps there's a, a generation that's going to grow up in virtual worlds that, you know, may just continue to, to live and ex- extend in there. Um, but yeah, certainly for me, I, I don't think you could replace. The, you, you can't conduct 100% of your business remotely. I think um, an element of face-to-face has to be uh, part of the the overall
0: uh, strategy. So so the question is really whether you and I are dinosaurs because we feel that that face-to-face interaction is necessary or whether actually there's going to be a generation who perhaps miss out on some of the uh, you know some of the relationships and types of relationships that people like you and I've built over the years by being out there face-to-face. I mean it's Potentially an open question at the moment yeah. as, to, as to whether that's the case.
1: Certainly you're a dinosaur. I am but a spring chicken. Um, <laughs> um, no, I, I think once you get into the professional world, you cannot replace, you know, if you look at the early stages of career development, um, I don't think anybody could ever replace that level of mentorship that you have from being around an office, being around your colleagues, being around your, you know, your manager and your peers. And just, you know, being around them, learning from them in meetings, learning from working beside them, you you cannot replace that. Although I know there is a lot of technologies now that are working towards, you know, being more immersive. And I I know we have a couple of things that you're working on, but I I still think a mix of, you know, face-to-face and improved remote technologies is going to be how we communicate and work in the future. Um, yeah. How yeah. do you replace the 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 emotion of people? How do you replace the the you know the the, the sarcasm and the random encounters and the, the, the immersion of being around the office? Um, where do you think that could go from from your side? So I mean, it's, it's one thing having Zoom and you know children and dogs barking in the background when you're on a meeting and leaving yourself on mute and not putting on your camera and pretending to be present. Um, where can know with voice technology and NLP um where do you think we'll be in three to five years time with this technology
0: well I hope it's not all kind of this television type stuff I mean this is I this is part of the thing this is a very you know you and I chat over Zoom at the moment and and clearly it's better than doing it over a telephone but it's nothing like as good as as doing it face to face you know I'd much rather be doing a podcast in a room with a with a microphone and uh, and two pints of Guinness, you know, no one can see the pints of Guinness underneath here, clearly. We're here um, gin and tonic with an umbrella. We're gin and tonic with an umbrella. Absolutely, we should be sitting in your garden, um, in in wet in the wet Western Ireland oh. and um, and doing this, but but we can't. So, you know, I I see that there is going to be a move towards an AR type of technology. I, I don't actually like virtual reality. And, and actually, I think most people who use virtual reality environments for any length of time go quietly mad. So, you know, these kind of cartoon like avatars, you know you begin to imagine that everyone sits there with kind of perfect skin and a smile on their face and kind of all bouncy. And you know, Facebook have, have just released their workrooms um, environment. And and it drives me absolutely nuts. I have to say. I mean, I'm I, probably an overly controversial thing to say, but you know, mm. I absolutely hate it. I hate the kind of the the photo reality cartoony nastiness of the thing. Um, and there is a good reason for that. There's there's um, it's concept of the uncanny valley. So human beings hate avatars that look almost perfect, but aren't absolutely completely realistic so if i generate an avatar of me which looks kind of 99.999% like me but is not quite there human you know research shows that humans hate it whereas if i appear as a cat with my voice people are like fine that's Nigel you know so um so yeah the uncanny valley is, is the problem with it so i think that what we've got to try and do is put people in in much more naturalistic environments so you know, the work we've been doing around augmented reality is to say, well, look, I can sit people in a chair round my uh, round my kitchen table. So literally I could go into my kitchen and kind of put people in chairs and we then just use the voice as the as the mechanism. Because the other problem with with a lot of these workroom things is you still need to be in front of a camera because what it's doing is it's looking where your hands are and, and that sort of stuff. It's like, I don't want to be tethered. To my desk all the time. You know, I wouldn't mind just walking around and, and actually relating to people in a more naturalistic environment. Mm. So I'm I'm kind of anti, I'm in the anti-video league. I love to be able to see people, I love to be able to interact with them, but I'm not necessarily sure it's a great thing to be stuck in front of a camera for eight hours a day. And it's certainly not a good thing to be stuck with a, with a virtual reality headset around you. We've got to find a, a, a hybrid. And I think that augmented reality presents a really interesting one. I mean, you could, for example, put tiny, tiny people on your desk if you really wanted to in augmented reality. So if you're, you know, if you're going on a major power trip, you could sit everyone else around the table, just sat on the desk in front of you, all kind of three inches high. And you could lord over them. I mean, you'd love this, Dave. I mean, I should definitely demonstrate some of this technology to you. It's been
1: some over to me, yeah.
0: I can just see you with all of all of your underlings, kind of on the desk in front of you, and you pointing at them in a in a in a kind of godlike way to uh, instruct them what to do. So yeah, it's there. It's there. Really, I when I invented this stuff, Dave, I had you in mind well, clearly.
1: I'd love to see an extension of this now. And you know, when will? You know, personal AI bots have not just visual, uh, you know, compatibility or uh, consistency with the person, but when can my avatar attend a meeting on my behalf? Let's say, you know, there's a, a, an early 7 a.m. call with a, a team out in APAC and, you know, I'd rather be in bed. When can I send my AI assistants, which will have, you know, speech synthesis, perfect, your know, facial reactions down to a tea. We'll have a full understanding of what's in my inbox. In case, you well, know, Dave, have you sent this email to so and so at such a time? You know, uh, how realistic could that be, and how far away could that be? We really
0: well, I think in in your case, not very far away at all, Dave. So I think we're just um, one of those kind of jumping monkeys that you see. We just put a camera in front of that and do it and, with, uh, with with active, with the symbols. Yeah. That that would be fine. But but I would say that for the for the average human being, probably quite a long way away yeah. but there's some really interesting places that we can go before that so you know you and i've spoken before about about generative networks so uh, and i know that you've been looking at, at gpt3 particularly in terms of you know and, and for people who, who might be listening god forbid anyone actually listens to this <laughs> podcast um it, the the idea behind a generative network is that you you feed it Um, a series of words or phrases, and it just goes off and produces more text, which is potentially relevant to it, Um, but actually goes into interesting new areas where you can start to do that with code. So you say, um, you know, write me a simple game of Pong, and it will go off and kind of look at all of its training data and generate code that does it. and you were looking at the mathematics side of it as well dave i think remember. I, was, I was blown away
1: by its capabilities so it essentially used the entire internet as its input it had 175 billion parameters which is you know at the time one of the largest networks that had ever been trained um if you, if you look at the um synapses in the red i think there's a comparison around 120 odd trillion is your um, the equivalent of you know the synapses in the brain, and that's only 100 x behind you know where GPT-3 is. But the, the results of it were both, you know, there's positives and negatives from it. It's it's strictly just a research project. It was quite interesting to see that yeah, you could actually it could predict what people were going to say typically by based on reading text. It was actually able to do arithmetic. So if you gave it two numbers just by reading text as an input, it was able to actually calculate. You know two numbers that it fell apart when you started to throw more numbers at it. But just interesting that it understood that from it, it was able to convert standard um you know human speech into kind of more legal documents as well and transcribe them, or in the reverse, uh translate legal documents into everyday language for people to be easier to understand. Um, I, I thought the the applications of this technology were phenomenal, um but it's also quite dangerous as well so there's pros and cons there's biases that it's going to pick up from i mean obviously the internet isn't necessarily a um uh, uh, an area of truth there's opinion there's toxic you know language there's racism there's lies there's an awful lot out there so how do you or how do we um address that or what are the what's the potential of it and the downside
0: Yeah, and and that's, I mean, it it does raise interesting ethical questions uh, at a number of levels, really, because, as you say, clearly, what we're going to start to do is build bots, virtual bots, which use this type of generative network to pretend to be a human being, effectively. Mm. And, And I can now generate a voice which sounds very suspiciously like a real person. So, we can now take samples of, you know, we can take Dave Power and we can actually create a realistic sounding Dave Power resynthesis. And, you know, we all know about deep fake technology in terms of video, but you can do deep fake audio in the same way. So, I could, you know, not only could I generate something which looks like you with one of these generative networks, it can actually answer questions, you know, as, as you say. So, you know, I can feed it um some some data and then it will answer a question apparently being you the facebook have done some really interesting work on this recently and have come up with something called blender bot so like the kind of thing that you magi mix sort of blender um and they've they've taken two interesting new turns on this as an idea probably the simplest one is actually addressing the filtering bit. So actually allowing you to, to put a set of rules around there in terms of what it will or won't do in terms of, of how it will respond to things. So, you know, effectively kind of a profanity filter in many ways. So just trying to steer the output uh, towards things which are more acceptable to, to the person. And, and that's, you know, that, that varies on the person, right? But the other really interesting thing is what people hadn't really thought about with these generative networks is they're static. So if um, if, I'm, if I look at a news article and it says, um, you know, Dave Power is you know the head of research at a another company and he is 39 years old, as far as the generative network is concerned that is who you are and you're kind of preserved in ASPIC there. But actually, you know, it could be that, you know, Dave Power is now 75, as, as you clearly are, um, and, and you know, CTO of, um, of Defined Technology and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So if I'm, if I'm trying to generate information about you from one of these networks, it needs to be up to date. So what BlenderBot does is it actually can use the internet to check factual information and update it on the fly. So if I start saying Dave Power is, um, we're hoping it's going to start coming out with, you know, interesting professional things about you, and it will be up to date. So, So this is where I think the research is going to go with the generative stuff. It's going to be a mixture of using databases, and that could be an internal database. So going back to what you were saying there is actually I can look in the email you know, it doesn't have to be a public search about Dave. Someone so, can say, well, how are we doing yeah. on that project?
1: But well, the other challenge with this then is, you know, there's a, a saying within the HPC spaces, you know, to out-compute is to out-compete. If you're talking about being able to search the internet in real time, that's an incredibly computationally intensive task, IO intensive task. Does AI become then, you know, do these large companies become the gatekeepers of AI and how do we, or how can the industry, um,
0: you know, adapt so that it doesn't fall into the hands of just a small few? Well, we have fallen into the hands of a small few. It's yeah. not, it's not whether it's happening. It's, you know, you only have to look at the the people who are running all the research for these things, you know, Facebook, mm-hmm. Google, even, you know, kind of open AI initiatives and that sort of stuff are still- even those
1: GPT tree runs, I think it was about $5 million per, training iteration and there was an awful lot of training iterations done on that and that's just not achievable by you know smaller more agile companies Uh, no
0: so ordinary ordinary human beings are in real danger here now you know partly we can go back to what we were discussing at the beginning so maybe you can you can regionalize some of these initiatives so at least we have the the european equivalent of of gpt3 but i actually think One of the problems is we're not looking at the networks in the right way, but actually all we're saying is, you know, just put, you know, add more parameters, add more parameters, add more parameters. Clearly, that's the best way of doing it rather than looking at at researching. How do we actually build these things as much smaller networks? You know, we've already exceeded the number of neurons in the human brain um, through GPT-3 so and you know gpt4 i think is planned to be 10 or 100 times bigger i can't remember you have some massive yeah, thing. they're talking about
1: 100 trillion parameter networks in that's right
0: two to three years time so it's so it, it's around. more about understanding how the neurons work yeah. and and actually so i think we need to we need to rethink the networks and try and better understand um, how they work, because I actually don't think anyone is particularly clear on why these things work the way they do. You know, we built these things, it's like, holy moly, it's it's an amazing thing. Um, but, yeah, we've got to find ways of, of generating, of making networks which are more compact, which are easier to train. Um, and, yes, we can tune these networks. And I think one of the, the magical things about them is that, you know, companies like ours can actually take existing networks and tune them and and really um kind of make them do what we want them to do but still yeah there's a lot of research to be done uh, you know things like spiking neural networks so um there's a guy who works for me neil glacken he's one of about four people on the planet who understands what a spiking neural network mm-hmm. is but that's actually designed to mimic um the way neurons work within the brain and so the ear so the way we hear is actually a form of spiking neural network. And it's all to do with, it's almost it's like competitions between neurons as to see which one gets, gets to the top. So I think there's, uh, there's just a lot of research to be done. Yeah. For the moment, I think we probably need to accept the fact that these models are controlled by the largest companies in the world. And our job is to be innovative with what is being produced until we can become innovative independently of that um you know maybe maybe someone will build a, a a massive hpc um kind of environment somewhere dave that i can go and play with maybe maybe if that's there was a it.
1: massive ai and hpc provider in europe
0: that we could use exactly that that would that would be the thing i think that's the thing that will get us past it <laughs> but but yeah it, it's you know clearly the so this is going to date this podcast but um, Clive Sinclair died yesterday, so I was actually so eighty-one years old, and, and it made me think that actually back in the nineteen eighties, like late seventies and early eighties, the UK was one of the premier um, hardware designer manufacturers anywhere in the world. Mm. You know, we had we had you know Acorn, who of course became um, ARM, who invented RISC. Yeah, you know that this is, you know, unbelievable stuff. Um, Clive Sinclair with the with the ZX eighty, ZX eighty one Spectrum, even Alan Sugar, so the much maligned Alan Sugar, um, produced the world's cheapest um, IBM PC clones, and only came unstuck because all of his disk drives were were faulty, which was unfortunate. So you know, we have proven, I think, that. Europe, and, and I think of, of the UK as being very European in that sense, can be a centre of excellence for innovative computing. We've just allowed it to slip across the Atlantic. You know, Arm clearly became owned by SoftBank, so it went the other way over to Japan, but now is um, it's about to be acquired by NVIDIA, so it's going westward again. But I think with proper investment, and, and I, I think no... All European venture capitalists say, no, no, we're very accessible. And it's really easy to raise money in Europe. Um, and but I think that the experience of most people is that actually, if you're sitting on the West Coast and you come up with, you know, of course, no one smokes anymore. So you can't have an idea on the back of a fag packet. But <laughs> whatever, whatever the modern equivalent of, um, of putting things on the back of a fag packet is, you can, you, you know, you can still get quite speculative things funded very easily. In the US. So I think there's also a need to kind of look at ourselves in Europe and say, where do we want to be in 20 years' time? You know, what what type of do we actually want to have a, a competitive AI industry? Do we want to have a competitive hardware industry? Do we want to be innovators in in chip design and, and that type of stuff? And really start to throw resource and investment at it. Um, and I'm happy to say anything that anyone's got?
1: Yeah, no, okay. hit the nail on the head there, I think, you know, tech data or tech sovereignty and even data sovereignty are going to become such big political issues over the next while, and, you know, I strongly believe that, yeah, Europe and, you know, including the UK there, there is an abundance of talent, and, you know, with the right political will behind us, I believe we will certainly get there, um, yeah. There's yeah, a lot of very interesting things happening um, with the Esher Cloud project that I'm working on that I probably shouldn't mention too much about. Say nothing. Say yeah. nothing. I've got, I've got a and team Dave of lawyers. A team of lawyers podcast the 15th time.
0: Exactly. There's a team of lawyers behind me shouting at me, tell Dave to say nothing. They actually <laughs> have been saying say that. A speech synthesis that just says, Dave said nothing. Podcast over. Thank you all for listening. Absolutely. There's a big, big red button. No, they actually started saying, say nothing even before you mentioned Azure Cloud, let alone afterwards. So, um, (laughs) But but no, it's, look, Dave, as ever, it has been incredibly interesting um, talking to you. Thank you very much for being the inaugural guest um, on the podcast for, there there will definitely be the Christmas party outtakes version uh, of the podcast published at some point in the future. The bloopers reel, yeah. It's de- definitely, I think the entire thing may make it into the bleep is real, but thanks again, Dave, for, for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, for those of you who listen, thank you very much for listening. Look out for um, episode two. Clearly rate us um, well on, uh, on wherever you see your normal podcast. So thank you very much.
1: My pleasure entirely, Nigel. I look forward to seeing you in the flesh, not too
0: distant future. Magic.